For those of you who don't know me, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. How was everybody's Christmas? Yay! Woo! Woo! Good. Um, our Christmas was uh, pretty good. Had, still have a little sickness in our family, but we had a good time with family and everything. So it's good to be here um, with everybody today. It's one of those things when you're kind of holed up in your house for a couple weeks because of sickness and stuff, it's great to get out and be with people, and especially to be with the body of Christ. Um, so it's good to be with everybody today. Um, so Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> and Happy New Year. And Happy New Year. Thanks, Dennis. So uh, we are in the Epiphany season which um, is a three-week series where we look at different aspects of who Jesus is. Um, Usually traditionally connected to his birth, this year we're doing it connected to a different part of his character and his calling and his anointing. And the word of this series is anointed. Everybody say anointed. And in the Old Testament, there were these three offices, these three uh, places that were anointed, that were consecrated, that were blessed, and they were set apart uh, in the in the tribes and in the kingdom of Israel, but also within the culture, and they were the prophets, and they were the priests, and they were the kings, and these were the anointed offices of the Old Testament. And then you have Jesus that shows up on the scene, and Jesus is called the Christ. It's not first name Jesus, last name Christ. It is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And does anybody remember what does Christ, what does Messiah mean? anointed one, anointed one. It means anointed one. And so there's this really um, key part in Matthew and in the Gospels where uh, Jesus asks his disciples, hey, who do people say I am? And they say some people think you're a prophet, some people think you're John the Baptist or this other guy and this and that. And then uh, Jesus asks Peter, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. And Jesus is like, yes, you see me. And you see me not because your eyes physically see me, but you see me because my Father in heaven has shown this to you. That I am the one, I am this person that every single heart in the universe actually longs for. That the promise of this promised one, I am he. And I look a lot different than people thought I would look. And I act a lot different than people thought I would look. But I am the anointed one. And so Jesus fulfills all three of these offices in his character and in his calling of prophet, priest, and king. And so last week we looked at the idea of prophet. Um, The other thing is, though, is that there's um, in 1 John also this truth that we, as in the church, you, plural, as in the church, are anointed that you also are anointed and called out by God the Father in Jesus Christ. And you are consecrated and you are blessed. And not you necessarily specific as you, although that is true, but you as in plural, as in the church. And just as uh, Jesus said to Peter, this confession that I am the Messiah, this is going to be the foundation of which I build my church upon. And there's going to be authority and power in this truth as we, the body, are connected to the anointed one, to the head. So because Jesus is the anointed one, to some degree, we share in his anointing. That we share in the idea of uh, speaking truth about who Jesus is, of serving one another, of setting things in order, because we are the body of Christ. 
This isn't a, uh, uh, like I said last week, an internet trivia game to find out if you're a prophet, priest, or a king in your own personal calling. Uh, Giftings and all that kind of stuff are great. But again, it's more so about the church. It's specifically about the head of the church, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. His people, his body, his bride is anointed. And we are that people. We are that people. Um, and this is, uh, this is really important on a couple different levels. Um, just because we can, we can say and we can think about spiritual truths. But when we actually walk in faith, the things that scripture teaches us, things change. And specifically when Jesus shows up on the scene, things change. And we in this day and age, the Spirit and the Bride both say come, and the Spirit is going to do what the Spirit's going to do. And the question is, to some level, are we as the Bride going to say come? Are we going to walk in this blessing, in this anointing, in this grace that, um, that God has called us into? So it's important because there's this practical application, but I don't want to... I don't want us to think so much about ourselves. One of the things that is really easy to do with um, Scripture is think that the story of the Bible is about ourselves, um, and it's not ultimately. And ultimately, we actually lose our part in the story by not focusing on Christ, by not focusing on God, who is the centerpiece of all Scripture. This was a Christmas gift that I got. Does anybody know what this is? Selfie stick. No, it's not to beat anybody. It's a selfie stick. So what you do is that you, uh, uh, you put a cell phone on here, and you don't, you don't need friends or you don't need a stranger to take a picture of you anymore. You can just set a timer, and you can hold it out here, and you can say cheese, and you can, uh, you can take a picture of yourself. It's great marketing because everybody loves to take selfies, and it's a really simple design. The other simple design of, uh, of 2015 that was really good from a marketing standpoint, not from a cultural standpoint, was the Coke bottles that have your names on it. Because if, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I want something with my name on it. And so Coca-Cola did a really good job with that. Um, Selfie sticks are fine for for what they are. It's interesting what they say about our culture, though, um, as far as uh, being um, focused on ourselves a little bit much. Listen to this marketing. Um, the, The... For use with a cell phone, and the last step to use the selfie stick is focus on yourself for the perfect self-portrait. So this is fine for what it is. A selfie stick, symbolically, is not a good hermeneutic for looking at the Bible. Okay? And that's what we can end up doing. We can end up looking at the Bible through our hermeneutical mindset with a selfie stick, thinking that Scripture is ultimately about us. Are we part of the story? Has God called us to be part of the story? Absolutely. But again, the story of Scripture is about God. The story of Scripture is about Jesus Christ. It's about him and his people, not about us as individuals so much. And it's not that God does not love you. It's not that God does not love me. He knows every single hair on my head and on your head. But when we approach the scripture, even when we talk about the failure of humanity, and even when we talk about how uh, we as the people of God need to walk in this anointing, the center point of all this is the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. If that is lost, if the anointed one is not clung to, none of this matters. So as we walk through this, as we have been walking through, we've been looking at um, different ways that these uh, offices have failed. So last week we looked at the failure of prophets. 
We looked in Ezekiel 13 to see how those false prophets acted. We then looked to see how Jesus, to some degree, fulfilled this um, idea of the prophet in John 4. And how he even said that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ. He is the one that we are all longing for, even if we don't even realize that we're longing. And we also talked about the importance of letting the word of Christ dwell in us and to speak that to one another, to admonish one another. That we do need, um, you know, the, the uh, prophets and the apostles and the teachers and the pastors and everything else, but us as the body of Christ, for the word of Christ to dwell in each one of you and to speak that word of Christ to one another. So it's not just about this small little group of people. It's about Christ's bride. It's about his church. And it's only about his church because it's about him as the head. Again, we can get so wrapped up in thinking about who the church is and what the church is, which are incredibly important questions. But we need to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ and who he is. So today we're going to look at uh, Christ as a priest, and we're going to start that by looking at false priests, at false corrupt priests. So if you want to take your text and turn to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. The people of God have uh, come back from exile. They are restoring the temple, trying to get back to the ways of worship in which they were called. We're going to start in verse 6. Malachi chapter 1 verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If, the, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And so here there's three different pictures that uh, the scripture is setting up. That It's saying like a father deserves honor and a master, a boss deserves honor and even a governor deserves honor. How much more do I, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, deserve honor? You honor these relationships kind of. How much more is that honor supposed to be towards, towards me, the person that ultimately loves you unconditionally, the person that graciously pours out gifts upon you, who walks with you, who is with you at all times? Verse 9, And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you that would shut the doors of the temple that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be and is great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. 
You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And there's this interesting thing that's happening here, is that as there's the people of God spread out through all because of the exile, he's saying that this place, this temple is supposed to be the place of pure worship. And yet it's not. That my name is being honored in all these other places, that incense is being burned to my name by the people that aren't home that are actually exiled, that are out there needing to have these um, other little worship services. And yet this is the place where I've called my people to be, and you're here. And yet here in this temple, you are not worshiping me with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. Why is that? And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, To give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. Then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings indeed. I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offspring, and you shall be taken away with it. Now, having poop smeared on your face is never a good thing, right? There was a time, I think I might have shared this story before. People are like, where is this going? Um, there was a time where we had staff meeting at my house. I think it was over Jay's sabbatical, and Eden was very small, and she was in diapers, and it was hot, so she was just in a diaper, so she had full access to get to her diaper. And she was upstairs in the crib, and we were having staff meeting, and um, uh, we went up to check on her, and I forget who it was, if it was Naomi or I, and we got up there, and there was this brown stuff all over the place. And there was even some brown stuff on her face. And so it's pretty disgusting to have poop smeared on your face. I've experienced it firsthand. It's not, it's not a pleasant thing at all. And it was one of those things that she was a kid, and it was funny and everything. But here with these priests, what God is doing in this imagery of spreading dung on the face is that he's basically showing the internal nature externally of what's going on. That by spreading dung on your face, literally, you would be unclean, obviously. But he's also talking about the heart. He's also talking about that your heart is not towards me. Your heart is not for me. Your heart is not towards the uh, the people or towards me. And you're offering polluted sacrifices. And so there's this internal thing of uncleanliness within these priests, of these corrupt priests. And this is like an external symbol of that, uh, symbolically, to do that. Jump down to verse verse 8. You have turned aside from the way, and you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord, so that I will make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instructions. So God is even saying, because you are not following my ways, because you are corrupting yourself willingly, that the people won't even come to you for instruction that the people won't come because I won't let them come because I care for my people. And your instruction that you're giving them on what is a correct sacrifice is wrong. You're offering polluted sacrifices. Again, this is something that is hard for us connect, to connect to in 2015, the fact of having like an unblemished animal as a sacrifice. But all of us can still relate to the fact of offering a sacrifice of praise, to offering our hearts to God, to offering something uh, holistically to God or in holding that back. 
that I'm going to give just this much because this is really all that God deserves. That I'm going to give this much just because that's all that I have. And there's this great story about the widow's offering where this widow gave everything that she had for worship. She gave out of her poverty. And it was this act of grace and this love towards God. So it's not about giving, it is about giving the best, but it's not about giving uh, this comparatively what's most expensive. What Justin gives, look what Justin gives, I can't give like that. It's not about that. Look what Carrie gives, uh, I can't give like Carrie gives. It's not about this comparison of who is uh, bringing the better offering. It's are we with all of our hearts bringing that offering ourselves to God, to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one that is ultimately our father that deserves honor, the one that is our master as we are servants that loves us, the one that resides over us in a kingly way. And are we laying down ourselves to him? Or are we holding back? So the corrupt priests, they um, pollute worship and they instruct the people to pollute worship by not saying, yeah, that's fine, just bring whatever you got. It doesn't need to be this sincere, pure thing that you give out of your overflow or out of your poverty. Just bring whatever. It also says that these corrupt priests were whiny worshipers. Uh, In uh, the middle of chapter one, it talks about this, this is just too hard and they snort at the Lord's commandments. How many times have we maybe done that? Like, Worshiping the Lord is exhausting. I don't have the energy to raise my hands in worship, even though I feel like the Spirit is calling me to do that. I am weary inside, and yet it's in that place of worship that we both receive grace and we honor God for who he is and that he refreshes us. But there's like this struggle with the internal and the external both ways. Because you can have your hands raised in the air, and it can mean nothing, right? Right? You can also be filled with joy inside and yet be fearful to express it externally. But God has called us to be holistic people, to be holistic worshipers, and where it's both our body and our hearts and our mind that are given to him in worship. But these priests, which we can relate to at times, were whiny worshipers. It's too hard to be obedient to the Lord. It's too hard, and yet God gives grace upon grace upon grace to follow him. And then thirdly, one of the things we see in this passage of these corrupt priests is that they gave autonomous instruction, that they basically made a law unto themselves. That there is a way that God has set up for us to live and to move and to breathe. And in this place, um, the priests are called to instruct the people in the way and the truth and the life of who Jesus is of who God is, but they don't. They kind of change the rules a little bit. And it's not changing the rules as far as being gracious and actually doing the fullness of the Lord's commandments. It's to make it easier, but not necessarily better. A lot of times it can feel like a weight, and yet Jesus comes and Jesus says that my yoke is easy, that my burden is light, that the commands that I preach to you are not burdensome, because I have done everything. And as the Messiah, as the anointed one, as we come to him, as we grab onto him and beg for grace, he gives it to us because he is a loving God, that he's a loving savior. So those are the corrupt priests. That's just a picture of the corrupt priests in Malachi 1 and 2. Before we move on, let's stop and pray. God, we thank you again for um, the pictures and the people in scripture that have faithfully followed you. 
We remember the priests that have um, stuck to your side, that have listened to your heart, that have walked in your ways, that have instructed people, your people, in your ways, God. We also want to confess and repent that at times um, we can uh, very easily sympathize and empathize with these corrupt priests, God. That, God, your ways at times seem so burdensome, at least in my perspective, in our perspective, God. And yet we hold on to the truth that your ways bring life and bring rest and bring freedom. So I ask, God, that you would turn our hearts um, towards these ways of man that would take um, the good part of religion and make it the bad part of religion, that makes it just self focused, that doesn't have you at the center, that maybe uh, honors you with our lips, but with our actions and with our heart, it's something different. So we ask for your grace in this spot. We ask to see, uh, Father, your son, Jesus, and his beauty. And we receive your grace um, to walk as Jesus walked and to cling on to our master, onto our savior, onto our God. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the thing about the priesthood with Jesus is that he completely blows it out of the water in so many ways. Because he becomes the sacrifice. He is the high priest that offers the sacrifice. But that sacrifice is himself. He even goes so much to say that he is the temple. And so all this stuff that goes around this priesthood and this temple, it's so fulfilled in himself that it's hard to understand. Maybe even harder to understand for us because we're not used to the temple uh, way of life. But in the Gospel of John, there's these illusions, and sometimes they're not even illusions as far as Jesus' priesthood. Sometimes they're just outright, hey, this is what I came to do. The priesthood of Christ is, is very much so connected to his death, which might be an obvious statement, but something that we need to remember. And so there's a couple places. There's one where it said in Malachi, how I wish that there was someone among you that would shut the doors of the temple. That would shut the doors of the temple. And we see in John 2 how Jesus is going through the temple and how Jesus is there. And what does he do? He turns over tables. He kind of drives the, the, the livestock out to kind of disrupt the stuff that's going on there because the temple had become corrupt. And so in some way, Jesus is actually fulfilling this call to be a priest in him kicking people out of the temple because he's trying to purify that this house will not be uh, a marketplace that the church, that the temple will not be a marketplace for you to come to. What it will be, it will be a house of prayer. It will be a house of prayer. So Jesus in his priesthood is, is kind of fulfilling this prophecy as far as I wish there was this person. I wish there was some priest among you that would close the doors so that these, these offerings wouldn't be made in vain. So that's John 2. Uh, John 11. So what happens after Jesus heals Lazarus and... Um, all these other miracles that happen with Jesus is that the, the Jews, the religious leaders of the day, start to get upset and they, they plot to kill him. And one of the reasons that they plot to kill him besides the things that he's saying is because they're afraid that there's going to be uprise of the people. And if there's an uprise of the people for this Messiah who kind of looks like the Messiah but has come in a different way, they're afraid there's going to be an uprising and that the Roman army 
the centurions are going to come and they're going to actually end up somewhat destroying the Jewish population that is there. And so Caiaphas, the high priest of that year, says this, this really um, um, interesting thing that he doesn't know what he's saying, but he's saying it. He says in uh, John 11, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And so he's saying there, in the context of what he's saying, it's just like, we need to kill this guy so that there's not this revolt, so that our people are safe. So we need to kill this guy and we, so that there will be peace among, so that the Romans don't overtake us. Right? John continues with some commentary on what he said, though. He says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And so we see here this prophecy that he doesn't even realize what he's saying. He's saying we need to kill this guy so that we can protect ourselves. But there's this other thread, this other redemptive story happening in the background that God has orchestrated and that Jesus will die, that one man will die for the people. But it'll be for redemption. It'll be for the forgiveness of sins. It'll be for the ultimate restoration of the universe that this will happen. This is Jesus' priesthood, this sacrifice. This is Jesus being priest. Third thing I want to draw in the Gospel of John is this word, tithemi. Everybody say, tithemi. Symbolically, there's this thread that runs through as far as laying down your life. John 10, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd and that he lays down, he tithemies his life by his own accord. That nobody tells him that he's going to do this. He lays it down by his own accord and he will take it up by his own accord, by his own authority. He uses this word, tithemi. And then later in a couple chapters, John 13 is the foot washing passage. And what does Jesus do with his outer garment? He lays it down. The, the, the scripture says that he tithemies his outer garment and lays it down. And what is foot washing? Foot washing is this incredible symbol of service. And so we have this idea of he's going to lay down his life as the good shepherd and then he's taking out his outer clothes and he's just in this, uh, this, this garment underneath and he's serving his disciples. He's laying down this outer shell to serve his disciples. And then later uh, in John 15, he says, greater love has no man than this to tithemi his life for his brother to lay down his life for his brother. And so there's this picture that it was both uh, internally in, in mind and heart as far as, as far as who Jesus is and laying down his life, but also this idea of like the disciples watched him um, appropriately derobe where he was just in his undergarment to then put on an apron to serve them, to wash their feet. And that ultimately Jesus Christ will serve as a priest because he's going to lay down his life for his sheep that he's going to wash and sanctify them, not just by water, as the symbol of foot washing, but by his blood. Later on, when Jesus is captured, Jesus is captured and the soldiers come and they take uh, uh, his outer garments off and there's one garment left. 
And this garment would have been the garment that would have been left when he washed the people's feet. And while it's not explicit, there is this allusion to this idea that this was a seamless garment. And in this seamless garment, it echoes back to Exodus, and it echoes back to the priest and their garments, and how they had this seamless garment that they had underneath. And so Jesus is stripped of all of his outer stuff, and again, he's in this this priestly garment, this echo of this priestly garment before he is stripped away of all his dignity and before he goes naked or with a loincloth to the cross. And so he's in his priestly garment. And then you go back that he lays down his life as the priest, as the sacrifice for these people. No greater love has this than somebody that lays down his life for his brother, for his sister, for his enemy. And Jesus is the good shepherd, and he lays down his life for us. So those are a bunch of allusions or direct allusions in the, in the Gospel of John. Also, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Again, Hebrews is about Jesus being the, the better messenger, the better hope, the better testament, the better sacrifice, the better possession. Uh, let's start in verse 11, chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place. So it's not that he's just at a temple that is physical on earth. He actually ascended to the true temple that is in heaven. And there he offered himself as this once for all sacrifice. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If you hop over to verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not of his own. So these high priests had to go in every year and it wasn't their blood that they were offering. It wasn't this pure, spotless, um, eternal blood that Jesus offered. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for us. So here specifically, we see like there might be all these allusions and these things and this prophecy about this man dying, all this other stuff, and Jesus, yeah, of course, on the cross. But then the writer of Hebrews kind of ties all this stuff together, looking at the life, death, resurrection, and ascension into the heavenly realm, of Jesus and how this is the fulfillment of this priesthood that we don't need to be doing any of these sacrifices over and over again. We don't need to be trusting in this um, uh, old covenant law because the new covenant has come. 
And the new covenant that has come is an eternal covenant and is a covenant that is so far greater than the old covenant. And it's not that Jesus came to abolish that old way. He actually came to fulfill it. And so that in him, we can rest and then we can, again, grab onto him as, for who he is as this great high priest and find salvation, find forgiveness of sins. The holidays is one of those parts where I think sin comes out a lot in us. We get to see different people that we might not always get to see. We maybe interact in ways that are a little bit out of our flesh rather than in our spirit. Listen, there is always need for the blood of Christ in our lives. There is always a need to be cleansed. There is always a need to be renewed. And it's not a burdensome thing either because he has done this. He is the one that went to the cross. And so these offerings and these sacrifices that we're going to get to in a second that we still do as a New Testament people are important, but it's in no way as important as the the linchpin, the core, the great high priesthood of Christ. And a lot of times we can think that that is true. And so we get disconnected from the head, we get disconnected from the Christ, we get disconnected from the anointed one, and we start living by our own means. That we don't live humbly and be like, I had a junk week and I actually need to go before the Father and say, Father, I need your blood. I need the blood of your Son to cover me. That I need you. And and, and to walk in that day by day. But I want to get proud in and of myself and say, no, I, I I said that last week at communion. I don't need that again this week at communion. Brothers and sisters, you do need that this week. You need that every single day of your life. We need that. It's a little bit prideful and arrogant to think that we don't. So, as we move on from the Messiah who fulfills this priest, this priestly place, we think about how this anointing is flowing through the body. One, it talks about in Revelation how like, we are actually the New Testament church. Um, there's this perpetual priesthood to some degree that we are called in Revelation a kingdom of priests that we will continue to be a kingdom of priests, a servant of the Most High God, even into the future, into the new heaven, into the new earth. And then if you go back to Malachi, this is, this is really cool. The stuff that um, God actually called the priests to do has some interesting implications for us today. So in Malachi chapter 1, it talks about how God set up this covenant with Levi. And it says, My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. And as Jesus has fulfilled all the covenant demands, so too can we walk in those covenant demands as we're addressed to him. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so my covenant with him was one of life. My covenant with him was one of peace. Peace I live to you. Peace I give to you. Not like the world gives to you but I give you my peace. And when Jesus actually gives us peace, we can rest assured. Remember last week when we saw the false prophets that said peace when there was no peace? When Jesus says peace, there is peace. When Jesus says peace, there is peace. So again, as we walk in this, we walk in a covenant of life and peace. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in all of my name as we come and we worship God, not just in music, not just with our money, but with our lives. We come in, in all of his name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many away from iniquity. And just as the Lord turns many away from his iniquity, so we as his body do the same. 
that we come and we serve one another and we love one another and we talk to one another inside and outside the church of who Jesus is because he's the one that can take care of their iniquity. We can't really take care of somebody's iniquity. But Jesus can, and we know who can. So as priests, as people who serve, we kind of bring, we, it's like we kind of do this introduction to who Jesus is, even though he's already working. Oh, that ache that's in your heart, that thing that you're, you're wrestling with, that answer that you're looking for, ultimately, I, I know the answer to that. And his name's Jesus. And it's not this Sunday school answer, but it is this Sunday school answer. Because while I might not be able to specifically speak to that person's heart, maybe I can, Jesus can. Jesus, by his spirit, can do that. And then finally, so we're a kingdom of priests who are God. We walk in the covenant of life and peace because it was fulfilled in Jesus, and so we attach ourselves to Christ. And then finally, we are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. 1 Peter 2. Uh, Worship team, you guys can come back up. Everybody turn to 1 Peter 2. Starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. The cornerstone, you are being built up as a spiritual house to be a priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture Behold, I am laying in Zion a, a, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in me will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you and you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, Cornerstone, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, pro- of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so this is our heritage This is our identity, that we are a royal priesthood, that the church is a royal priesthood. And uh, over in verse uh, 5 where it talks about to be a priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And it is only through Christ Jesus. It is only through faith in Christ Jesus. We can do any kind of spiritual sacrifice that we want, but the ones that are acceptable are through Jesus, that they're not through us in and of ourselves. They are through faith in the Son of God who has come to redeem the world. And so what are those things that we do as the priesthood? The two things it says right here, not to say that there's not more, is that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. What, what, what spiritual sacrifices? Scripture gives three examples. One, Romans 12, to present your bodies before the Lord as a spiritual sacrifice. To put yourself in the presence of the Lord who is wants to be with you and to have your mind renewed. Because there is a world out there, both religious and irreligious world out there, that wants to talk to you about who God is, and those things are false. It wants to conform your mind and your heart to those ways, rather than to the ways of Christ. And so we come and we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And my friend always used to say, the thing about a living sacrifice is that a living sacrifice can always get off the altar. 
But what we want to do is a living sacrifice. We trust and we have faith in the Son of God and we stand there in his presence. And we say, God, speak. God, may your word wash me. May your blood wash me. How can I serve you today? How can I love you today? Because your love towards me is incredible that I can't even understand. Sometimes I have to believe you don't even love me because you love me so much. So to offer spiritual sacrifices is to put ourselves in that place. One, Hebrews 13, do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So some spiritual sacrifices or some real sacrifices to not neglect to do good and to share, whether it's time, whether it's resources, whether it's words of wisdom, whatever that is, with one another. These sacrifices are pleasing to God. Also, Hebrews 13, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of your lips that give thanks to his name. And so us as a priesthood, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We do good and we share with one another. And we also praise his name because his name is greatly to be praised. And these are the ways we uh, participate in the, in the priesthood by offering these spiritual sacrifices. The other thing we do, the last thing we do, according to the text, is that we proclaim the excellencies of God. We proclaim the excellencies of God who has taken you from the darkness and has put you into his marvelous light. And so today, as we approach the communion table, as we remember the the blood and the body of Christ, we proclaim his death until he comes. We proclaim his resurrection. We proclaim to one another that we are in need of Christ, that we are in need of his blood, and we proclaim back to him that you are enough, that your blood is sufficient for all of these things. Even when we think that it is not, even when we're wrestling with doubt or apathy, or just we're just tired, that the love that is shown on the cross by him laying down his life is enough. And this covers us, and this covers our sins. And so we proclaim this to one another. We proclaim this back to God about who he is. And he even says in Scripture in Ephesians that the church is to present the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and principalities of the heavenly realms. And so we're proclaiming these things to each other and to the spiritual world and back to God. And that is part of us being connected to Jesus as the priest. That is part of us being part of the royal priesthood is to come and offer these sacrifices and to proclaim, remembering the ultimate sacrifice that was made. So here at Cornerstone, if you're new, um, Dennis and Elaine are going to come down. We're going to worship through song as we take communion. Meditate on the fact that Christ the Messiah, Christ our high priest, and what that means, that there is no other blood, there is no other person, there is no other anything that can cleanse you besides him. And as you come to this place, remember him. And as you take, you are proclaiming that he is enough, that he is more than enough. And you proclaim his death. And you proclaim your need and our need for him. God, we thank you for this time. Um, We pray that you would uh, speak deeply to our hearts your truth from the scriptures. Um, Again, I just keep thinking of just holding on to you of grasping onto you. That there's, no, there's nowhere else to go besides to you. And actually, there's a ton of other places to go, but no other place is going to. There's so many options that are being presented to us to go to. 
but you are the only place that satisfies. And so we ask you, God, to continue to come into our lives, to continue to renew our minds, to teach us how to be your people, to teach us how to be your kids, and that we would rest in the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. So we come and we remember, we praise, we offer up spiritual sacrifices, and we proclaim that your name is good, and we rejoice in who you are. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, you are are so, so good. You are so worthy of our praise. We come to you with, with open hearts and open minds and, and just rejoice for, for who you are as Emmanuel, as God with us. There's no greater gift that we could receive ever. And so we, we thank you for, for what you've done and we, we pray that we would live, our, our lives would be changed and transformed to be like you as a result of that. So we say thank you. We praise you. We love you. You are so good to us, and we, we don't deserve it. And we pray that we would show that same great undeserved grace to, to those around us out of what, overflow of what you've done for us. We thank you. So from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, hear these words. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so, Cornerstone, as as Jesus is our anointed head, may we, as his corporate anointed body, his kingdom of priests, walking in covenant of life and peace, with God and his family. May we present our bodies as living sacrifices in God's presence daily to be renewed in our minds, in our bodies, and in our spirits. May we not neglect doing good and sharing the blessing of the resources and the wisdom that God has given to us. And may we offer continual sacrifices of praise before God for who he is and for what he's done for us and who he's calling us and transforming us to be.
We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with God.